Welcome to Chitheads from Embodied Philosophy. I'm your host, Jacob Kyle. In each episode of this podcast, I interview a different elder, leader, or teacher from the yoga and wider wisdom community on topics ranging from Eastern philosophy and practices to consciousness studies, social justice, and the human spiritual condition. If you like what you hear, please help us share these teachings with others by leaving us a review on iTunes. And of course, be sure to check out our writings and other educational materials on embodiedphilosophy.com. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Christopher Wallace. Christopher, also known as Harish, was introduced to Indian spirituality at the age of seven and initiated into the practice of yogic meditation at 16. His degrees include a BA in religion and classics from the University of Rochester, an MA in Sanskrit from UC Berkeley, an MPhil in classical Indian religions from Oxford, and a PhD on the traditions of Shaiva Tantra from Berkeley. He received traditional education at yoga ashrams in upstate New York and India in meditation, kirtan, mantra science, asana, karma yoga, and more. He currently teaches meditation, yoga darshana, or philosophy, tantric philosophy, Sanskrit, mantra science, and offers spiritual counseling. 
Harish is the founder and head faculty of the Matamayura Institute. His teachers, mentors, and gurus in chronological order include Guru Mai Chidvalasananda, Paul Muller Ortega, Alexis Sanderson, Marshall Rosenberg, Somadeva Vasudeva, Dharma Bodhi Sarasvati, and Adyashanti. Harish is the author of Tantra Illuminated, The Philosophy, History, and Practice of a Timeless Tradition. So with that, hello, Christopher. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you. So it's really an exciting opportunity to interview you because I have to say reading your book, Tantra Illuminated, was quite a game changer for me. I had felt called kind of intuitively to this tradition, but I didn't have a resource to really investigate and be introduced to uh, the whole scale and scope of the tradition, which you do such an excellent job um, exploring in that book. So I wanted to just start off talking a little bit about that and maybe what your intention was behind writing Tantra Illuminated and anything else you might want to share about that, uh, that project. Yeah, well, you know, I wrote the book initially um, by invitation. Mm. So it just so happened that um, the now infamous John Friend of Anusada Yoga was a friend of mine uh, because we had both, uh, you know, seriously studied at Guru Mai's ashram in the Catskills, you know, throughout the 90s. And I was quite uh, young then, but I, I got to know him before he started Anusara. And then, um, you know, once Anusara was in full swing about six years ago, um, before that whole scandal, uh, he, you know, asked me to write an overview of mm-hmm. the tantric tradition for Anusara Press. And, you know, it actually was a great invitation because I was given full creative freedom. I was able to dictate the design of the book. Mm. He put up all the money, you know. I got pretty much exactly the design I wanted. Um, You know, that first edition certainly had uh, its share of typos, but the design was beautiful and was definitely what I wanted. And the, um, you know, the, the, the lack of editorial interference was wonderful. I could just write the book I, I wanted to write, which was this, you know, 400-plus f- page overview of um, the original tantric tradition uh, that, you know, we didn't have. There, this, this is the only book of its kind in the sense that there are many books on tantra, but there's no other book that gives an overview of the whole tradition in terms of its philosophy, its mm-hmm. history, and its practice, um, and, and which is non-sectarian, you know. I mean, the book covers, it focuses on Shaiva Tantra or Shiva Shakti Tantra as opposed to Buddhist Tantra. Uh, however, w- you know, within that rubric, it's non-sectarian. It, that is to say it's not prejudiced towards any specific lineage or lineage grouping or, or sectarian view, of which there are many. Right. Um, so it is this kind of broad overview, um, and it's it, it, it filled a niche, you know, that needed to be filled, and that's why I think it continues to sell 
purely by word of mouth. I mean, I think we're we're well over ten thousand copies now. It's hard to keep track. Wow! But that's purely by word of mouth um, because it does fill a niche. Yeah. And so it's it's been great to get feedback. I constantly get feedback from people who say, "Finally, I I can understand what the heck is going on," because all these little pieces of tantric philosophy and practice um, that people get from different teachers. The book fits them into an overarching, coherent context. Mm-hmm. And for people who want that, <laughs> that is extremely satisfying. And I think you might have been one of those people. Yes. Well, I'm, and part of the niche that I feel like it's speaking to is what you mentioned at the beginning of the book, which is uh, the appeal to the scholar practitioner, which which it seems to me that, you know, there's a lot, there are a lot of books on Tantra and a lot of them are based on kind of a fluffy distillation of the philosophy or confusion between traditions or just not an interest in being historically accurate. Um, So I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit about this split generally between the scholar and and the practitioner and why texts like this that you're offering are are so important to kind of begin to um, transcend that divide. Yeah, thank you for asking that. That's a super important question because we do have um, a substantial divide. And if I can describe it briefly, it's simply that on one side, we have um, very rigorous scholarship happening on tantric philosophy and practice amongst Sanskrit scholars in North America and Europe and worldwide. Um, and these scholars uh, have virtually no communication with the practitioner community, which by and large is extremely confused about historical issues and, and indeed even philosophical issues, mm-hmm. the, the primary confusion um, philosophically being, as I said, this kind of inability to distinguish between one's idiosyncratic Teach individual teachers' perspective or individual lineages' perspective against the overarching mainstream view of the tradition. Um, so you know, so we do have this. Essentially, if we can just simplify it down to a, a very simple statement, it would be um, hyper intellectual scholars who are rarely practitioners, but mm-hmm. who understand the tradition well. And on the other hand, practitioners who rarely understand much about the tradition or are educated in anything outside their own lineage. Mm-hmm. Um, and the practitioners tend to speak in language that's very vague or fuzzy or ambiguous or mystical or airy-fairy. Um, <laughs> and that's not satisfying to people who want really grounded information. But neither is the scholarship satisfying to people who want a spiritual um, application of these teachings, not just an intellectual one. So this all <laughs> leads to the obvious conclusion that the role of the scholar practitioner in bridging these worlds is important, uh, and we have very, very few of them. We need more <laughs> scholar mm-hmm. practitioners. We have a dozen or so prominent ones that are that are actively working today. In the last generation, we had a great example in Georg Feuerstein. Yeah. And, you know, he, we now know, made many mistakes, but he was a trailblazer and he was a scholar practitioner. And his book on Tantra is really the only one that's, that's comparable to mine. Uh, the difference being that he covered the elements of classical Tantra that were absorbed into mainstream Hinduism, whereas my book focuses more on the unique doctrines of classical Tantra that in many ways are different from 
mainstream Hinduism. Uh, but but his book is also to be to be recommended. And and now we have more um, scholar practitioners and and we need still more but yes. this the 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 conversation is opening up and we have online journals now like sutra journal which are actually publishing both respected scholars and practitioners side by side and and that really is a a, a great thing so now people cannot you know teachers cannot get away with not doing their homework and saying um you know, giving undue authority to uh, unexamined uh, uh, pronouncements, you know? Yeah. 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 I, I've seen Sutra Journal, and I think it's a fantastic resource. And and as you say, there does seem to be, the tide seems to be changing somewhat in that the the research is circulating, I think, a little bit better than perhaps it has been. So that's good news, I suppose. Um, so now I want to talk a little bit about your story and, and kind of what, I know that you started practicing at a very young age. So I'd love to kind of hear the, the arc of your, the, the story of your practice and how you encountered um, this philosophy and this practice and, and sort of the, the ups and downs perhaps along the way, if you want to share any of those. Sure. Um, with the caveat that, you know, autobiography is not very interesting to me <laughs> as a genre. I, I like telling specific t- stories and, and sharing specific experiences, but you know the kind of arc of autobiography is is relatively meaningless to me because I think it's more or less impossible right. to kind of tell a, a story of a life in in a way that's that's non-reductionistic. Mm. Um, and so, but having issued that caveat, I'll just say you know I was my parents um, got into traditional forms of Indian meditation when I was young. And I was exposed to, you know, things like Sanskrit chanting and mantras from the age of about seven. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, the first time I heard the mantra Om Namah Shivaya as a kid, I sp- spontaneously closed my eyes and had a vision, the only vision I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> at, at seven years old, uh, I had this vision um, of a being a very beautiful kind of wise being made entirely of blue light. So this guru type being, though I didn't even know the word guru at the time, but this guru type being appearing in a light body made entirely of kind of iridescent shimmering blue light. As soon as I heard the mantra for that mantra for the first time and imagine then the impression it made on me years later as a teenager when I discovered that having a vision of a guru or a wise person in a blue light body is a classical experience uh, recorded in, in published sources. Um, so that that was amazing, right? Yeah. Because there was no context for that. I, I was seven. I, you know, I, I was... Uh, certainly not reading any spiritual books or and my parents had literally just discovered this and brought home this mantra tape from the meditation center mm. that they had first attended the previous week so the, you know there's no context at all and so this vision you know in retrospect taught me a lot about the nature of mystical experience because um you know it it the vision that I had was was unique to me, but at the same time, it was of a, of a kind that other people have had 
in this in the specific tradition that I ended up um, studying. So I can't explain that logically, um, you know, but but it seems significant. <laughs> so. So, but the, you know, then of course I had a teenage rebellion period where I'm like, this is this is weird, and you know, my 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 dad moved on to other things spiritually, and my mom stuck with traditional Hindu meditation, and uh, I thought, you know, I'm, that's not really for me. And then at 16, I met Guru Mai Chidvalasananda for the first time in person and that was a life-changing experience uh for me and and um kind of everything flowed from there i had my own experience uh, of this spiritual path you know and came to it on my own terms and by the way i should just mention for your listeners the word chit consciousness mm-hmm. or awareness in that you have ch- uh, in your chit heads. Um, that's actually the same word as chid in Chidvalasananda. Mm. My first guru's name means the bliss of the play of consciousness. Um, and of course, it's the same word again in Satchidananda, mm. being consciousness and bliss, because Sanskrit words change their form depending on the words they're adjacent to. So chit and chid are the same word. Mm. Anyway, so that's a Sanskrit geek note. <laughs> of course, I ended up <laughs> thank you for that. Ended up becoming a Sanskrit. I mean, long story short, I I, I got into meditation. I med I I kept going to the meditation center religiously, even in those turbulent teen years of discovering sex and drugs and rock and roll, mm-hmm. all of which interested me. Yes. And uh, and and the thing is, though, I kept a lifeline um, that that I think was a saving grace, um, uh, in the end to the meditation practice. And, uh, I, you know, once I got kind of more and more into it in my early twenties, I wanted to go deeper and the ashram, you know, Guru Mai's ashram was great, but it didn't offer advanced studies. It didn't really even offer intermediate studies. They, they needed to appeal to, a wider base of, uh, of, of relatively uneducated yogis, um, just partially just to fund the, the massive, um, place that they had that they've since downsized. And, and, right. and so they didn't have to have that, you know, um, uh, huge scene. But anyway, um, I, at the time, it was like 1997, I decided to study deeper and I was, delighted to meet you know paul muller mm-hmm. um who was had just gotten a professorship at the university of rochester and so i went there as an undergrad age 24 i had never gone to college because i didn't know what i wanted to study and why do it otherwise you know mm-hmm. so i went I, I i was a freshman at age 24 oh, you didn't go to, you didn't your first year in college you were 24 years old yep oh wow yep. yeah because I didn't believe in going to college without knowing why mm. <laughs> you wanted to be there, you know. And it ended up being a very wise thing because yeah. um, with focus and dedication, um, knowing what I wanted to do, you know, I got almost straight A's for four years, which I never would have done if I'd gone to college at 18 or 19 years yeah, old. Right. So if any parents are out there hearing this, <laughs> take note, um, you know pressuring your kid to go to college before they're ready 
it, it, it hurts everyone, I think. But anyway, so I, I did end up doing really, really well. I studied with Douglas Brooks and Paul Muller, and I ended up gravitating much more to to Paul, uh, his teaching style, and the content of his teaching, mm-hmm. who I think is simply a brilliant scholar, and yeah. um, as well as a practitioner, a very, very dedicated practitioner. And, and, and he, uh, checking out his, his published articles and his teaching, I, I, I recommend either of those. So... Um, then I wanted to go even deeper because what I discovered <laughs> when I got into Tantra and, 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 and Shaivism, the religion of Shiva Shakti, um, and specifically Tantric Shaivism, uh, I discovered a spiritual tradition that seemed to go infinitely deep, uh, the richness of the teachings and the s- subtlety and sophistication of the of the of the spiritual wisdom was just what I really wanted because I was so turned off by that time, two thousand one now um, that I was so turned off by the the watered down or made ready for prime time or bastardized <laughs> versions of these of these beautiful spiritual teachings and so I discovered to my delight that there really was a tradition that took it as deep as you could possibly want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that, and that wasn't, um, airy fairy in the sense that there was real substance behind the teachings that if you inquired, you know, it was a tradition that encouraged questioning. And when you did inquire, there was more there to be found. It wasn't just, you know, a smoke screen. Yeah. Um, and, and so that was, that was wonderful to discover. And I decided to, you know, learn Sanskrit and uh, long story short I don't know <laughs> however much I can make it short it's hard but uh, you know I, I learned Sanskrit and was able to study at Oxford with the greatest living uh, scholar mm-hmm. of Tantra um, he's a scholar of all forms of Tantra but he specialized in Tantric Shaivism because that is the tradition that originated um, Tantric philosophy and practice and uh You know, finally, I, I did end up getting my PhD, but I realized, wow, I don't want to just be a scholar. You know, I want to teach practitioners because, you know, in the scholarly avenue, there's just infinite work to be done, and it can get very, very, very um, pedantic. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, so I wanted to bring these teachings to people who were thirsting for them and who who didn't have that much access to well-grounded information. So that's, you know, that's how Tantra Illuminated came about, to come full circle, that I wanted to write something anyone can read without a degree in the subject, and yet was grounded in the um, incredible scholarly work of the past 30 or 40 years, uh, which most of the public doesn't have access to. It's extremely difficult to read if you don't already have a degree in the subject. Right. That that scholarship, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That's uh, thank you for sharing that story of your you know deep and long investigation into this tradition. So now I want to go into what tantra is. You know, for those out there who don't really understand so much about the tradition, or they may have a very you know, we have a kind of colloquial or folk understanding of what Tantra means that is very much at odds or, you know, somewhat at odds with, with the work that you're doing. So I would love for you to kind of uh, describe uh, the Tantric tradition and how it's been, perhaps how it's been misunderstood. 
Sure. And, and that's, of course, something hard to put into uh, a few words. And <laughs> unlike my autobiography, I won't even try <laughs> to put it into a few words. But what I will say is, um, just to talk about the word itself, you know, there's a teacher, there's a modern spiritual teacher, Byron Katie, and she calls her teaching the work. Yeah. And in the same way, Tantra itself means the system, mm. <laughs> you know, because Tantra means a system of practice or a doctrine or a matrix of ideas um, or a scripture teaching a specific system of practice. So to refer to Tantra un as an unmodified noun is like the system, this amazing um, coherent system of spiritual practice that arose 1,500 years ago. Well, maybe earlier, but the first documented evidence is 1,500 years ago, and which was so successful that it, it, it did something that we've basically never seen in the history of Asia, which is it swept through a huge geographical area in a matter of a couple of centuries. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, here's a little p piece of trivia which shows how, how, impact, how rapid its spread was, um, because we have very detailed records of Chinese pilgrims uh, who wrote travelogues about India in the, in the um, 6th and 7th centuries. And one of these pilgrims traveled all over India, doesn't mention Tantra, right? And then just two generations later, we have the travelogue of another Chinese pilgrim who traveled all over India, and he's talking about Tantra a lot. And mm -hmm. Tantra is all the rage, and he finds it in almost every single Buddhist um, establishment that mm -hmm. he visits. And so in two generations uh, or less, um, all of Buddhism in India became tantra-sized. Mm -hmm. So tantra then is a system of spiritual practice, a way of doing spirituality. It's a way of doing religion, if you prefer. Uh, so that's why we can speak of non-tantric Buddhism and tantric Buddhism as well as non-tantric Vaishnavism, the religion of Vishnu, mm -hmm. um, and, and tantric Vaishnavism, which barely survives anymore, but it, it used to be, be there, and um, tantric Shaivism and so on. And Tibetan Buddhism, then, is simply tantric Buddhism. Mm. It's just that um, n nobody is familiar with a non-Tibetan form of tantric Buddhism because it was wiped out in India by the Muslim invasions, and Tantric Buddhism survived pretty much only in, in Tibet and parts of China. And it didn't survive the communist revolution in China. So today, you know, Tantric Buddhism really survives only in uh, Tibet. Um, but it used to be much more widespread, just like Tantric Shaivism um, used to be spread throughout Southeast Asia and Indonesia. And we see the remnants of it today in Bali, but um, Tantric Shaivism used to flourish in Java, in Indonesia, uh, again wiped out by Muslim invasions, um, and, and used to flourish all over India, and then was absorbed into the Hindu mainstream, and many of the unique doctrines and practices were almost completely lost and passed down only by, uh, in specific lineages. Um, and some of them did survive to the present day. So it's not an artificial revival to get into um, classical tantra. 
uh, it's it, it, it did survive. It passed through the eye of a historical needle, as it were. It almost didn't survive, but it did. Mm-hmm. And now it's 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 making a comeback, you know. Yeah. So again, in the form of Tantric Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism worldwide, enjoying a renaissance. And of course, that is a very institutionalized form of Tantra. And it's quite dogmatic compared to uh, Shaiva Tantra, which is much more yogic, much more grassroots, much more organic and fluid in its nature. So those people who are not drawn to institutions um, enjoy the teachings and practices of Shaiva Tantra even more than than Buddhist Tantra. So I think that's why we're seeing this um, surge of interest over the past generation, especially of interest in Shaiva Tantra, even if people don't even know the name of it, mm-hmm. when they encounter the teachings, when they hear about the teachings from any kind of well-grounded source, people get very excited. I've seen amazing reactions to these teachings literally all over the world. I've taught in South America, um, you know, Mexico, North America, Europe, India, uh, you know, all over the place. And uh, everywhere people uh, give a very, very strong positive response to non-dual Shaiva Tantric teachings. Mm-hmm. So how uh, did how did uh, the how did the word Tantra become so associated in the West with uh, a form of sex and and then also in parts of India with black magic? How how did that kind of transformation? Of yeah, meaning well, into- you know, that. That that is a long story as well, and you know I, I just want to refer um, the listener to uh, another podcast if I can because I, I I talk at length about this question there, and I don't have time to do so here. Um, so Ashton Sabo's podcast, gosh, what's it called, Sh- um, Shivani or Shivana or something. Uh, anyway, maybe we can provide a link yeah, to that. Yeah, sure. I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, and so that's an hour-long discourse on this very topic. Okay. Um, you know, it, it, essentially, it's a misunderstanding, <laughs> meaning, um, you know, people, the uh, modern Western or American neo-tantra or sexual tantra has been around for a 100 years, and it originated purely by hearsay, meaning the people who originated um, this Western, completely Western sexual tantra teaching, uh, they just heard about, you know, they didn't have access to primary sources. They just heard about the, the idea of a sexual ritual in a yogic context in ancient India, and they got excited by that idea, mm-hmm. and they tried to they tried to create it. You know, they they essentially invented it on the basis of hearsay. Uh, which is not to say it's invalid, right? It's now evolved for a hundred years in the West, and and if you go to a neo tantra teacher, a sexual tantra teacher, they had their teacher who had their teacher who had their teacher, and it goes back probably a hundred years. Uh, so I'm not invalidating it. I'm just saying there's no direct connection to the original tradition, and indeed in original tantra we find zero sexual techniques being taught. We do find some sexual meditations, but no techniques for enhancing or maximizing sexual pleasure because that was never a part of original Tantra. Only modern uh, neo-Tantra or sexual Tantra, whatever you want to call it. Um, So the two words to me are simply homonyms. They're just, they happen to sound the same Mm. and they're not Mm. the same word. 
English Tantra and Sanskrit Tantra, you know, right, it's one right. way to distinguish. So how did the misunderstanding come about? That's way too complicated to get into, but um, Robert Love has written on the subject very cogently. Um, Hugh Urban has written on the subject very cogently as well. I recommend those for those who are interested. And um, I've mentioned elsewhere that Westerners saw these images of deities copulating, and those are real tantric images, these images of deities copulating, and they thought, oh, you know, this is a religion of of sex, where in, in fact the images of deities copulating, like Shiva and Shakti, um, or you know Buddhist deities, same thing. Uh, these images are actually metaphorical. They're, when Shiva and Shakti are depicted making love, that's supposed to communicate to the viewer the intimate interconnection of awareness and energy. Mm-hmm. Shiva is pure awareness or silent, still, spacious awareness, and Shakti is flowing patterns of energy. And the image, in one go, manages to encapsulate and communicate the whole goal of the path, which is to bring transcendental pure awareness and the flowing energy patterns of human life into perfect harmony. Mm. So the image communicates that better than any other image could because making love is blissful making love is union when it's done right okay it's it's a it's emerging it's a oneness right but what's being depicted is the oneness of awareness and energy of of the transcendent and the imminent and that is the whole goal of the tantric path that's what that image is communicating it's not telling you you know Getting it on is the path to liberation. It's not, that's not what it's communicating. Of course, the tradition had nothing against sexuality. It was sex positive in that sense, but it wasn't putting sexuality forward as a means to liberation either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what you're saying here, I, and, and we're already kind of transitioning into the, the conversation about non-dualism. So now I want to, I guess I just want to th- bring that word into the conversation and maybe have you, you're already doing it, but maybe have you elaborate um, on what, uh, what non-dual tantra means, what it looks like, and, and how it might be contrasted to a dualistic understanding um, spiritually. Yeah, so you know the 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 phrase the word non-dualism is almost synonymous with monism, mm-hmm. but not quite. Monism means there's only one thing in all of existence. And that is what the teachings tell us, but they prefer the term non-dualism, which translates the Sanskrit advaita or advaya because non-dualism specifically connotes as a term that there appear to be two things Mm -hmm. that are in fact really one. And that's what they did want to emphasize, that there is a two-ness to reality or or a three-ness, depending on how you look at it, but a fundamental two-ness, and that is um, consciousness and energy uh, where, where matter is included within energy. And that these two are in fact one, and that to discover that truth experientially is the goal of the path. Mm. We find this teaching uh, in, in, in multiple branches of the tradition um, expressed f- patterned flows of energy. Uh, so the tradition is saying, look, this, this absolute silence, still void that you encounter in deep meditation, 
is actually the direct source of every form. And the formless void embodies itself as form. And, and that, in other words, there's no ultimate division between the transcendent and the imminent. Mm-hmm. Now, this can sound like an esoteric mystical doctrine, but it's actually extremely, has great practical implications. Mm-hmm. Number one being that it erases the boundary, the human-made boundary between the spiritual life and the worldly or mundane life. There is nothing unspiritual in this view. Um, that is to say, everything is an expression of spirit. Um, now, having said that, of course, there is behavior and conduct that doesn't lead to realization of the truth and therefore is unspiritual in that sense, right? Mm-hmm. But in the in this deeper sense of... of, of um, everything is an expression of spirit. Everything is an expression of God, if you prefer that term, or of Buddha nature, or of infinite consciousness. It's like fill in the blank in terms of that, what term you're using, because no term can actually capture Mm -hmm. it. But the implication of the teaching is to realize the divine, you know, or, or, or unconditioned Buddha nature, if you're a Buddhist, in the everyday life in the in the in the details of everyday life in your relationships in your job in um the simplest everyday actions express um the 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 purity and the joy of innate consciousness divine consciousness itself so it's hard to put that you know in a few words effectively Mm -hmm. (laughs) um you know but the uh, to sum up, the non-dual teaching is um, not only is everything interconnected, there is a seamless unity. There are no, there are no actual divisions in reality, and everything is a seamless unity of flowing energy and awareness, and all the kind of divisions we create within ourselves and between each other are artificial. Mm-hmm. And when we dissolve those divisions and experience seamless unity, it leads to a practical outcome, which is um, natural compassion, love, and respect for all beings, for nature, for the environment. Um, You know, it it creates a different paradigm to live in when you actually experience seamless unity. It's different from just believing in unity. Believing in unity doesn't put you in the different paradigm. You must be experiencing it, and then you automatically are in this different paradigm where your behavior reflects that your experience and your behavior without any effort whatsoever is beneficial to all beings. Mm. That's the tantric vision, uh, uh, kind of in a nutshell. And I could say more and come at it from different angles, um, but so, yeah, I, I want to ask a question um, based on kind of I'm, I'm imagining sort of someone who is encountering what you're saying, what you'd said about all expressions of life being divine and, and somebody maybe with a superficial understanding who's also a drug addict would say, OK, well, since, you know, this implies that there's no hierarchy of value because everything is equally divine. What is the teaching that then would encourage someone who is, you know, who is who is addicted to drugs or who is an otherwise in a kind of very um, 
limited um, experiential place, how would they, you know, because it seems like they could interpret the teachings as everything is divine and then see like, well, you know, this is equally divine as anything else. So what would, what are, what is, what, what internally to the tradition would aid someone uh, to, you know, rise out of this kind of form of suffering? Well, I think that's a great question. And, you know, (laughs) If if uh, if an alcoholic or a heroin addict says, "Hey, you know, alcohol or heroin is is divine too," so who are you to judge me? From the tradition's point of view, they actually have a point <laughs> that we don't we don't have the basis on which to make a moral judgment about that. Yeah. Um, and the thing that the thing that kind of the teaching that offers them a hand out of that situation if they want it is precisely not there's that there's something wrong with what they're doing or that it's not divine it's that the course of action they're engaged in doesn't lead to um experiential realization mm. of divinity in all things even though divinity is in all things that doesn't mean you're experiencing it you know so if the person who's an addict decides they want to have that experience if they decide they want to be free of dependence on a substance and experience the divine equally in all things without recourse to any substance, then the tradition says, hey, we've got tools to help you with that. And we, we've got a hand to, to, to lift you out of that quicksand. But if you want to go down that road and if you want to destroy your body with those substances, fine. <laughs> go right ahead. Like who, who are we to say that that's wrong? Right. Who are we to say that you're a bad person for doing that? Mm-hmm. We don't we don't have we can't there is no moral high ground in that sense in the tradition and and yet there's a profound compassion and, and a willingness to help as soon as the person says I want to make a change. I want to do something different. This isn't actually leading me where I want to go. So I think it is possible to mm-hmm. actually relinquish judgment of other people for their actions uh and yet at the same time, acknowledge that those actions may not lead them uh, to 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 realization of the truth or to real fulfillment, um, and 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 you know that's and that's okay. It's okay that you know not not everyone is is interested in those questions, mm-hmm. at least in this lifetime. Okay. So how does uh, just going back to the subject of non-dualism? How does not the non-dualism of Shaivism differ from the non-dualism of Vedanta? Uh, yeah. So you, as an interviewer, have a have an incredible skill in asking the questions that, that <laughs> to answer require fully a long answer. <laughs> each one, each question. I just want the listeners to know each question would require a full hour. <laughs> Really, to, to, to do justice to. But um, the short answer is this. It's a, it's a very significant difference. And people with a superficial understanding of Indian philosophy or yoga like to say, oh, they're all saying the same thing. They're all saying oneness. We're all one. Uh, well, first of all, that's not true. There's yogic philosophies that posit two-ness that, as absolute, spirit versus matter, and, and never the twain should meet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... Um, Yes, Vedanta and Tantra are both saying oneness, but in a very different way. Why? Two things. Um, One is that Vedanta is an illusionist doctrine primarily, Mm -hmm. meaning to say 
oneness is real and diversity is an illusion. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, that's the fundamental stance of, of earlier Vedanta, uh, meaning pre-20th century <laughs> Vedanta, because 20th century and 21st century Vedanta is mixed up with everything else. Right. But Vedanta, properly speaking, says diversity is an illusion. I think that's a very problematic stance, especially as our discourse has gotten very sophisticated in how... Um, not honoring diversity in our society, whether sexual or racial um, or any other kind of diversity, um, I should say ethnic instead of racial, but not honoring diversity uh, is a form of oppression, becomes a form of oppression. And Tantra then is a better philosophy for our time, practically speaking, because it says diversity is real and it's beautiful. One consciousness becomes all these different forms with different desires and that's all beautiful you know Mm -hmm. diversity is not an illusion this one divine consciousness really does become these different forms even though it retains its essential essence whereas vedanta says no it, it 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 transformation is not real that's illusion illusory nothing has ever really happened all action is an illusion and so it, the practical implications are, are big because you, as a tantrika, you don't have to renounce the world. As a Vedantin, as a strict Vedantin, you need to renounce the world because mm-hmm. it's, it, it, it's, it's what deludes you, you know, because the world, oneness is real and this apparent diversity which brings you into, you know, from the Vedantic point of view is problematic. Now, the other main point is... Um, that Tantra criticizes Vedanta by saying they have no Shakti. Hmm. Meaning, the vision of consciousness in Vedanta is static and unchanging. That's why they have to assert that diversity is an illusion. Whereas in Tantra, consciousness, divine consciousness, the ground of being, is uh, dynamic Hmm. and self-transforming. So dynamism translates the word shakti you know so essentially it's radically different views because um tantra is saying you know the divine is inherently dynamic it desire and action are inherent to the divine itself whereas vedanta is saying no desire and action are part of the realm of illusion the the divine is an absolute unchanging uh reality now these are this is a stark contrast then and it's you know the in the in the there's a much more subtle way to to talk about these things but the but the contrast is is real mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so like i said you know it would have to be a longer answer to explain why the vedantins arrived at that view and why it made sense within their context and then why and and how the tantrikas criticized them and uh you know, we're eventually successful because in modern Vedanta, there is a tantric spin that's given. A modern Vedanta teacher usually has a tantric spin to their to their teaching. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, Tantra won that particular philosophical debate about the nature of reality. Mm-hmm. Well, for uh, for giving you questions that require a lot of uh, a long answer, you're doing a very good job at answering them succinctly. So thank you. <laughs> um, one of the things that just kind of came to me as you were mentioning this and what I've thought about before is how interesting it is that, you know, 
uh, and I know this is changing, but generally within the context of teacher trainings or, or uh, study of yoga philosophy in general, the, the Upanishads and, and the Vedanta are, are studied very closely, but really it is the non-dualism uh, non of Shaivism that seems much more appropriate to a Hatha yoga-centered uh, yoga practice since, you know, it's not a renunciant thing. It's you're, you're looking to kind of deepen and, and unite with your body in some way. It just seems like it's more conducive. And and, and is it also true, from what I understand, that Hatha emerged from the traditions of Shaivism as well? Yes. I mean, two, there's two important things that are operative here. And I think this is so important for modern yogis to be thinking about. Um, so first of all, there's a conflation of yoga with Hinduism mm -hmm. that happens. And uh, by that I mean... <laughs> That Vedanta is not yogic originally. Hmm. Modern Vedanta is taught um, with, in conjunction with yoga, but it, for most of its history, Vedanta was not yogic, meaning no psychophysical practices were approved as a part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it was purely a, a, an intellectual contemplative philosophy that sought experiential realization, but purely through contemplation, not through any psychophysical practices of yoga whatsoever. Hmm. So that's important to realize that when you're teaching Vedanta in a history of yoga, that's because you're confusing yoga with Hinduism. Yeah. And if you teach yoga, strictly speaking, Vedanta doesn't really have much of a place. Uh, the Upanishads do because the Upanishads are actually a wonderful mixed bag of teachings, including mm -hmm. yogic teachings. They just happen to get co-opted, as it were, or, or taken over by Vedantic teachers and 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 and. And everything in the Upanishads was explained Vedantically, but the original texts themselves uh, include all kinds of teachings, including yogic ones. Mm -hmm. um, so just to, to mention that, they, the Upanishads do have a place in a history of yoga, and Vedanta deserves, as far as I'm concerned, a passing mention in a history of yoga. Yeah. And uh, so that's, that's important. And number two issue in, the, the, in these yoga teacher trainings again, is the fact that um, traditions that emphasize renunciation are being taught to people with no intent of renouncing. Right. And I think that is philosophically and spiritually incoherent. Yeah. That's why, um, once, it's, once it becomes better known, I suppose, you know, tantric philosophy will no doubt take over because it is the philosophy articulated specifically for non-renunciates. Mm -hmm. And I think also having renunciate swamis teaching householders, meaning non-renunciates, uh, is, 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 is likewise problematic. You know, um, the tradition itself says people who have renounced sexuality and career and family should not be teaching those who have not renounced those things. And that's exactly what we have in modern India is renunciate swamis for the last you know, 100 plus years, renunciate swamis teaching non-renunciates. From a tantric point of view, it's a big problem. Uh, and we need more and more qualified teachers who haven't renounced um, and who are teaching philosophies that align with the values of their students mm -hmm. rather than imposing, um, you know, or without even meaning to often imposing quasi-renunciate values. Mm -hmm. And that's why we still have shame about sexuality in our yoga communities. We still have shame about um, making money mm -hmm. um, 
and things like that. And, you know, even though we act, we like to act as if we don't have those things, it's undercurrents of Puritanism Mm -hmm. that uh, come from these renunciate traditions. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, what I find as well is, you know, there's this confusion between, you know, trying to teach renunciant traditions and teachings but also then trying to change, you know, to confuse kind of what they were originally intending with a non-renunciant practice. So trying to kind of contort the teachings to fit the modern milieu in a, in a sense, which is what I see a lot of times happening in in the distillation of some of these philosophies is like, okay, we're just going to pass over that, you know, very obviously glaring renunciant teaching, and we're going to try to, you know, retranslate and appropriate in our own kind of way that works for us these other teachings, which um, which I think we'll get a little bit more into in a moment when we talk about um, appropriating uh, certain texts, which we'll talk about when we talk about your Roche article. But before we get to that, um, I would love to, uh, I was thinking about um, when I went to one of your teachings recently in Brooklyn to one of your talks, you talk about, which I thought was so interesting and important, this idea of enlightenment. And we often, you know, the the goal of the tradition is often uh, translated as enlightenment, but you talk about uh, historically why that might be problematic. And you offer an alternative translation, which I'll, I'll let you offer. So I just want to, I w- was hoping you could maybe expand upon that um, discussion and why you know, translating the goal of practice as enlightenment might be um, something to avoid? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, you know, the Sanskrit term bodha or bodhi has been translated as enlightenment for uh, uh, 200 years now. <laughs> um, and it's problematic because it conflates these uh, distinctly Eastern spiritual ideas with Western concepts of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. The enlightenment was an intellectual movement in, in, in European philosophy, of course. And they're not the same at all. And and, and confusing them is problematic. But all, more importantly, uh, when people hear the term enlightenment, it suggests to them that this spiritual goal or, or spiritual realization necessarily includes a kind of um, download of wisdom, and it, it doesn't necessarily include that. And indeed, um, someone can have a true spiritual awakening and yet still need to do the integration work. Yeah. So, you know, in the tradition, we understand um, that there's these two terms that are operative, awakening and liberation. So you can awaken to the truth of your own being, but still not be liberated from mm. your psychological baggage and some scars because they those operate on sort of two different levels. Because you know the truth, the divine core of your being is free of all your psychological baggage. But when you go to talk and interact with other human beings, uh, you're using your mind and your body, and that's where the psychological baggage is. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so the tradition, the tantric tradition articulates, hey, unless you're just going to sit in a cave and meditate on your own soul, uh, you have to do integration work. And the integration work um, doesn't come automatically as part and parcel of awakening or, or so-called enlightenment. It has to, you have to be willing to do it. 
um, and it's sometimes painful and it's sometimes joyful to, to integrate your realization, your awakening into all the areas of your life. And I, and I wrote a blog about that on my website, which people should read if they're interested in this topic. Um, but, you know, the key is that there is a goal to spiritual practice. It is attainable. When we phrase it as enlightenment, it sounds far distant. It sounds esoteric. And people aren't, most people aren't interested. But if we phrase the same goal as awakening to your true nature, every, everyone gets more interested. But that is the correct translation. Mm. That's what the term means. It's about awakening to your, your true nature. Uh, you know, however, however that's defined, you know, the Buddhists define it as a kind of radiant nothingness. Um, you know, and the Shaivas prefer to define it as pure consciousness or presence. Um, but they're really talking about the same thing, I'm convinced. Mm -hmm. And uh, so awakening to your true nature is what it's really all about. But then comes the further work of integrating that self-realization where, where self doesn't constitute a static entity necessarily. Self just refers to what you really are. So the realization of your true nature then needs to be integrated into all the levels of your being. And for most people, that doesn't proceed automatically. Mm -hmm. And they have to ask themselves the question, hey, what would my relationships look like if I allowed what I have realized deep down inside to permeate my conduct? Mm. And that is a crucial, crucial question. And without it, people become spiritual bypassers where they uh, have awakened to real profound truth and beauty, but... Um, they prefer to just bypass the integration work and excuse themselves from it on the basis that, well, I'm, I'm already God and, and so are you, so nothing needs to be done. But that divinity doesn't um, flow through all our words and actions unless we do the integration work, mm -hmm. even though it's true that we're already divine, etc. You know, ultimately that that doesn't benefit other beings if you're not willing to do the integration work. Mm -hmm. So, so that's an important thing you know, that this whole discourse around enlightenment, when we clear it up again, there's very practical implications to using more correct terminology, like awakening and then uh, integration and then liberation as opposed to enlightenment where it's all just kind of downloaded magically into yeah. someone's brain. And, and if you believe that, then you might be willing to follow a guru you think is enlightened and then later discover that their conduct is not impeccable because maybe their awakening is real, but their integration is incomplete. But if you have the correct teachings and the correct translations, you would already be aware of that, you know, mm -hmm. as a possibility that this person can be awake and yet not fully integrated. And that's, a, that's, that's a valid, you know, thing that 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 to be aware of, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I hear the word liberation, it still makes me kind of think of um, the idea of enlightenment that you hear in a lot of traditions, which is this idea of the burning up of karmic residues in such a way that you kind of skyrocket out of the world. But I, from what I understand, this is not the tantric teaching that you're not you're not you're not going you're not transcending existence correct like liberation is something imminent right for some schools of thought it is transcendent but for the 
for the tantric schools that I study, also known as kaula schools, um, they stress liberation in the body, mm. and that means um, not not burning all the karma and all the samskaras so that you transcend and get out of the, you know, you, you go beyond earth's gravitational pull as it were here, here you actually don't, are not expected to dissolve all your samskaras. That means impressions of past experiences. Mm -hmm. You're not expected to, to, um, end all your karma because then nothing would bind you to other human beings and human relationships, which are valued in this, in this tradition. So you're, you're, it's not, you're, you're not expected to do anything, but you're encouraged if you want this, um, integrated, liberated state, you're encouraged to, um, dissolve as much of the, of this psychological baggage, these samskaras and so on as necessary to no longer get hijacked by, uh, those those impressions and the triggered emotions that that are associated with them meaning when you have unresolved emotional experiences in your being from your past you get triggered and then you 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 say brutal things to other people or you behave in ways that you later regret Mm -hmm. so if you do the work necessary so that you still have you know, a psychology to some extent, you still have some scottas to some extent, but they no longer control you. They no longer hijack you. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you're no, you're, you're free in that sense. Liberation just means you're free to choose consciously choose the most beneficial course of action instead of getting hijacked by your fear, your anger, your insecurity, your jealousy, and so on. And none of those emotions are even bad. The tradition does not say that these emotions are bad. They just say if you get hijacked by them, then you do something that in retrospect you feel was not aligned with your deepest values. That's not liberation Mm. by definition. Mm -hmm. So, Yes, it does. And I have a a further question or a follow-up question, which is, so following liberation, do you continue to reincarnate, you know, in, in, in other traditions, you know, after you've reached liberation or enlightenment, you, you no longer, you know, you no longer reincarnate, which always to me sounded like a real bummer because I was like, well, reincarnation sounds fun. <laughs> so why would I want to end it? That doesn't sound like a great, um, uh, yeah, except, um, for most human beings in the history of the world, embodied existence is so dominated by, by suffering. Right. <laughs> you know, if we're, if, if we're extremely lucky and it's important to remember that, um, we are, yeah, the, the te- yeah, that, that we are. And that the teachings about getting out of the reincarnation cycle are, are contextualized in, in cultural environments in which mm. embodiment for most people is suffering and still is for so many people around the world, indeed the majority. So, in just on terms of a purely physical level, let alone spiritual angst, which I think afflicts everyone who hasn't um, made progress on the spiritual path. So, you know, the thing is, the Tantra tradition, however, is not that interested in that particular question. It's because they do not preach awakening and liberation as a way out of the reincarnation cycle. They preach it as a way to become intimate with reality, free of your cultural conditioning, more awake, more alive, more engaged, more real, more full of love, 
it, they, you know, and it's a state that benefits all other beings, and they are not very interested in the whole escape from reincarnation part. They don't talk about it much. Okay. You know, it's there. It's there in the cultural background. It's just not a central value mm-hmm. in 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 tantric culture per se. And uh, of course, there is the notion, especially in tantric Buddhism, of um, reincarnating in order to benefit other beings. The Dalai Lama being the most obvious example. The current Dalai Lama is considered a reincarnation of the previous. Dalai Lama, etc., and this makes no philosophical sense. Uh, if it's the same soul, if it's the same soul reincarnating, how could that be? Because if the Dalai Lama is self-realized or awakened by definition, there is no separate being exactly to reincarnate. So, what reincarnates in the tradition has an answer. Yeah. What reincarnates is the intention to benefit all beings, specifically the the Abhilokiteshwara vow, the Bodhisattva vow is what's reincarnating, not a person. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, that's an interesting teaching. Uh, and it shows that the tradition has this idea that, you know, this intent to benefit other beings can sort of reincarnate, um, even though there's no, you know, if you are truly self-realized, there's no separate Jacob, right? <laughs> if the, if the, if the, you know, prior to awakening, Jacob is like a drop of water in a test tube. Post full awakening, or Jacob is merged with the ocean of consciousness, the ocean of being. Mm-hmm. How are you going to pick out that drop again? Right. You know, you're not. But but that doesn't matter because you you literally are everything. You actually you know experience yourself in everything, and therefore death has no fear. And of course, life. Prana, life energy continues in another form, but it's not a continuation of the same being because that being has become the whole, has become the universe. It's not like an autonomous unit that's, you know, rising out of a body and then planting itself into another one. Right. I I really love that idea of, of the intention to help all beings reincarnating. I've never heard anyone express it that way. And I think it's so beautiful and, and such a, a fruitful way to think about it. Um, compared to kind of this, you know, uh, um, uh, monadic soul that we're kind of, you know, talking about. So now I want to shift gears as we get towards the end of our interview um, and talk about a a recent article that you wrote in response to Lauren Roche's, um, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, Roche, Roche? I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know. (laughs) Okay. Lauren Roche's highly popular book. In fact, I have it myself, The Radiance Sutras, um, which is a um, quote unquote translation of the Vigyana Bhairava Tantra. And you were um, not so happy with this um, translation for a number of reasons. And and so I I, I guess I want you to, um, you know, talk a little bit about the issues with that text and then just the kind of the general problem that you see in appropriating ancient manuscripts um, in this kind of poetic way that takes a lot of um, artistic liberties. Yeah, and, you know, it's easy to misunderstand that article, even though I put a lot of work into making it um, less misunderstandable. It's still easy to misunderstand it because um, my problem is not with Lauren Roche Mm -hmm. particularly. My problem is with... um, the the enterprise that he represents and is a good example of partially because it's so such a popular book um 
so the thing is, uh, the public is not yet very educated mm-hmm. about what what constitutes a translation, what constitutes an interpretation, how to discern the difference, how to use them in the different appropriate ways. And what we have in the case of the Radiant Sutras is a poetic rendering, mm-hmm. well, an attempted at a pro- poetic rendering of a primary source in Sanskrit called the Vigyanabhaitava Tantra, which is a very important scripture in, in the lineage that I especially study. And the thing is uh, that since we don't have any really good translations of the primary source, the public has no way to discern what in the Radiant Sutras is, is, are Lauren's poetic flights of fancy and what are ideas from an ancient text on the yoga of spiritual liberation. Uh, so th- that's the problem, you see. I have no problem with Lauren writing poems inspired by the Vigyana Bhairava Tantra. I have a problem with the fact that the reader is not given the tools mm-hmm. to discern the difference between Lauren's original authorial poetic voice and the actual teachings of the original scripture. And as it turns out, a close study reveals that very few of the precise yogic teachings of the original scripture um, make it into the Radiant Sutras. Certainly some do. And, uh, and, And the value in the Radiant Sutras largely comes from Lauren's own experience as a meditator and the beauty of the poems comes from his skill as a poem, as a poet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think all the poems are beautiful, but certainly some of them are. Some of them are. Yeah, and that's yeah. his skill as a poet. Um, but for somebody seeking a technology of awakening and liberation, which stood the test of time and was um, carefully studied and passed down for hundreds and hundreds of years that book is not giving them access to that. But the problem is they think it is. (laughs) They think, most people think the Radiant Sutras is giving them access to this spiritual technology in some measure, um, in some significant measure. And so it's a missed opportunity because uh, people don't realize what they're missing Mm -hmm. because they're not equipped to realize what they're missing. And it just so happens that the original text is, I think, extremely powerful. It offers extremely effective technologies, spiritual technologies. Um, and, and we only, as far as I'm concerned, we as a culture, and including Lauren and me in the same culture, we have no business creating a poetic rendering of a text that hasn't even been translated correctly yet. Yeah. And if once we have that, then we're in a different situation. And that's why I have no problem with Matthew Remsky's uh, uh, poetic and, and, and modern rephrasing of the Yoga Sutra because we already have many accurate translations of the Yoga Sutra mm-hmm. and they're there for people to consult. And so Remsky is not leading people astray, you know, um, whereas with this Radiant Sutras, we don't have uh, something for people to compare it to. I mean, we do have other translations mm-hmm. of the Vigyana Bhairava, but none of them are quite correct and, and many of them miss the point um, uh, in terms of the text seeks to give you practices that you can actually do and experience a profound effect from. So if you get the details wrong, 
I mean, in this case, God is in the details when it comes to this text. If you get the details wrong, we're talking about very subtle awareness cultivation techniques. If you get the details wrong, the practice can't give its fruit. It can't give it, confer its benefit. And so um, there is benefit to reading the Radiant Sutras, it, but it, very little of that benefit um, derives from the text the original Sanskrit text that the Radiant Sutras purports to be a transmission of or a translation of or an interpretation of, and he's never quite clear about that. So as you know, for those who wish to be informed yogis, these things matter. Um, and, uh, it matter. I think it matters both culturally and spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's why, and, and, and a lot of, Yogis, especially Californian yogis, they don't like hearing critical comments about about someone else's teaching. And I would have held on to those comments for the past four years, and I've and I tried to reach out to Lauren directly, and got no response. I communicated with his editor at Sounds True back and forth, um, who understood some of the issues to no avail. Eventually, um, the editor at Sounds True actually promised me. Uh, in email that the book would be clearly marked, uh, clearly explained to be not a translation at all in any way. Mm-hmm. And that didn't end up happening oh, because, uh, you know, so, so Lauren, I think because Lauren believes it is just as valid as a translation. Uh, and, and, and the reason he believes that is because he doesn't understand Sanskrit. So anyway, it's a long story. Read the article. Yeah, Read no, it's article. a great article. We'll put it, I'll, atta- I'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a great article and it is, it definitely, um, you know, I've talked to a couple of people who, who probably responded in a similar way to some of your California yogis in, in, in not being able to like tease out, um, the point that you're making from kind of a, a personal smear. But I, I feel like what, uh, is at stake and, and tell me if you perhaps agree is, is this is the different uh, what you said about technologies of awakening? I feel like in general, in um, I don't want to say Western spirituality that sounds very um, general, but at least in the United States in the yoga community, there's a, a, there's a sense of not so much an appeal to spirituality as a technology. We're kind of in this milieu of spirituality as kind of a, a, a salad bar sort of you know you know, choose your own adventure kind of experience that really is at the hands of one's own kind of personal, um, fantasy creation. And, 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 and so the idea of a science of awakening, I think is actually very alien to a lot of people. So I, I, I'm wondering if you could, maybe if you, if you agree with that, if you could say a few words on that. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. And I'm glad we're going over time because these are very important, uh, points that, that that are fundamentally misunderstood. I mean, you know, my my teachers, my academic teachers served a very important purpose because they taught me to ask the question: When you look at these ancient texts and teachings, what do they assume that the audience already knows, and therefore they don't even have to mention? And so fundamental presuppositions are different in this modern Western yoga culture and the ancient culture of of these sources. Fundamental presuppositions are different. And one of the best examples you just raised, which is that 
modern yoga practitioners and spiritual practitioners generally are often oriented to experience, having beautiful experiences, mystical experiences, revelatory experiences, whereas the original tradition is oriented not so much to experience but to accomplishing a fundamental and permanent paradigm shift Hmm. uh, of which experience is only a byproduct, you know. So that fundamental orientation... um, is is so crucial and accounts for the very different results we're seeing. People in the West who who do yoga are having lovely experiences, um, but rarely are experiencing the fund undergoing the fundamental paradigm shift in which, as the tradition says, you see the truth, uh, the wordless underlying truth of reality, so clearly that you can't unsee it again. Uh, and you enter into a different paradigm f- and, and from, f- you know, permanently. <laughs> That's yeah. what the tradition's interested in, a change in your default state of being and your, your default state as opposed to how high you get experientially. Right. Um, they're interested in changing the default state, the state that you come back down to when the experience, whatever it is, is done. Mm-hmm. And so that is a crucial thing to contemplate as a yogi is like, what am I actually doing here? Am I, am I ex- oriented to experience or am I oriented to uh, a, a fundamental paradigm shift or shift in my default state? That is harder to accomplish, but ultimately, I think, far more fulfilling than any number of blissful experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I, I, in fact, you mentioning blissful experience it it makes me recall something that you had said um in your talk in brooklyn which is the idea of ananda the the idea of ananda is not it should not be confused with kind of these you know momentary highs that's not what we're talking about you you mentioned how ananda is actually something that persists even when pleasurable and unpleasurable experiences are taking place is that correct? Yes, that's that's more yes, but the tradition actually articulates different kinds of ananda, mm-hmm. but the deepest in that like seven kinds of ananda, but the deepest kind of ananda is the the quiet but deep contentment with what is, the love for the whole of reality that persists even in experiences of grief, sadness, longing, sorrow that there's a bliss, a subtle but very strong kind of bliss, which is simply the joy of being alive, which it's possible to access so deeply that that joy of simply being alive and being aware doesn't go away, even in very painful experiences. So it's it's the bliss of accepting the coming and going of all that comes and goes. Mm. Not only accepting... Uh, almost rejoicing in, sort of quietly rejoicing in the coming and going of all that comes and goes. That's very different from the kind of bliss that comes and goes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a beautiful place to be. I hope I get there someday. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And and, and also, (laughs) I can't let you end it there because to to, to, to imagine it as, you know, as a future state is um, spiritually problematic. We just want to acknowledge, okay, this state already exists within me. Mm -hmm. I just want to deepen my experience of my own being to where I can access uh, that, that already true thing, you know, within. So it's not a state to someday get to, but if I can deepen starting now, if I can deepen into the now, deepen into my experience of my own being more and more, I taste 
that which is already true, my capacity to be in love with reality as it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a beautiful place to end it. Wow, thank you so much, Christopher. This has been great. I think we've covered some really um, interesting and important topics. Um, at, to close, I just want to ask you or give you an opportunity, I guess, to share um, where people can find out more about you, um, any courses that you might have going on that people could look into, and anything else you want to share. Yeah, um, well... <laughs> I should mention that in my spiritual value system, I'm not I'm not so much into branding. So I, I don't I don't think branding reflects the original tradition very well. So I don't name my teaching anything. I don't call it a specific kind of teaching. Uh, my website is tantric studies, tantric spelled with a K, mm-hmm. um, and that's obviously a very general term. Yeah, uh, and you know. The thing is, each teacher automatically is unique without having to brand themselves. But what I try to do in my own unique way is give the practitioner aspect uh, access to um, very well-grounded information, access to the original tradition as transparently as I can. So if I have a niche, that would be, I suppose, it. And um, you can find out more about that dot org sorry can you can you repeat that you broke up a translations uh, of sanskrit texts that i try to make as literal and accessible as possible again i try to be transparent Mm -hmm. um and and whether i'm successful or not other other scholar practitioners will have to make that call but um certainly some blogs are there that people have said are very very not general discussions of the spiritual life and um there's uh, you know i also offer courses through true education tru true education which is a spiritual education portal mm-hmm. um so and and with those resources plus my book they lead you to yet more resources that i don't have to list here because you'll find them by exploring those Yes, and I can't recommend um, your website too highly. I think that the, the, the blog post that you've offered on your website, tantricstudies.org, for all the listeners, they are incredibly informative and interesting. So um, definitely check that out. Um, and True Education was, I think you, you broke out a little bit when you were saying the website. It's, isn't it livetrue. What is it? Org. Live true, spelled T-R-U, dot org. That's where you my courses are available through there. So my free writings and, and videos are on tantricstudies.org, and my more in-depth courses are on livetrue.org, along with some other teachers' courses, too. Okay, wonderful. All right, thank you so much, Christopher. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. All right, talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was our interview with Christopher Harish Wallace. I hope you enjoyed it. For more information about Christopher and his teachings, please check out tantricstudies.org. That's tantric with a K, studies.org. And for information about his online courses, check out livetrue.org. That's L-I-V-E-T-R-U dot org. Thanks so much for listening.